I've never considered myself politically prescient. This is why I write about the past. Um, I think I have a better understanding when I can look back 10 or 15 years of, I think about, my, I wrote a Vietnam novel, you know, more than 10 years after the war, because I wanted to be sure the things that made me angry during the war still made me angry, right? Um, so I'm not good at predicting the future. I remember thinking in those Vietnam years and in the AIDS years that I would never see the, uh, the U.S. Uh, as, as divided as it was then, wrong on both counts. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. John Irving, widely hailed as one of America's greatest novelists, is back, and he has a lot to say. Irving's new novel, The Last Chairlift, has been seven years in the making, and at 900 pages, it is his longest. John Irving is now 80 and is the author of 15 novels, including the international blockbusters The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules, and A Prayer for Owen Meany, which is his best-selling book. He says that The Last Chairlift will be his last long novel. John Irving wrote his first novel at age 26. He competed as a wrestler for 20 years and coached wrestling until he was 47. He was inducted into the National Wrestling Hall of Fame. Irving has won the National Book Award, an Oscar, and a Lambda Literary Award, among numerous other recognitions. His books have been translated into more than 35 languages. John Irving was born in Exeter, New Hampshire. He lived for many years in Vermont, first in Putney and later in Dorset. He sold his Vermont home in 2014 and now lives in Toronto, which is where he spoke with me. John Irving, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Just before uh, we started recording this, you began by apologizing because you're not known for your short writing and short answers. So that seems like a good place to start. You have said you are now 80 years old and you've said that uh, at, at the end of your life, you want to be you don't want to be writing your most difficult or longest novels. And the book I have in my hands, The Last Chairlift, weighs in at a modest almost 900 pages. So um, what happened? Well, uh, longest doesn't necessarily translate uh, into most difficult. Um, uh, this is my uh, longest novel in terms of number of pages. And I always thought um, sizing it up in the railroad station, it looked like a long train. Uh, the number of characters, the passage of time, those things. but. There, absent from it, what is, is the research factor that has been a factor of difficulty in a lot of my novels. How much medical research there was before I could write The Cider House Rules, how much I had to know about maritime tattooing in the Baltic and the North Sea before I could write Until I Find You. This novel, it was six years in the writing time. Owen oh, Meany, which is shorter, uh, took two years longer. Um, but that had no research element. Um, the body escort part of that novel was something 
uh, I had to learn about. For example, there was nothing really I had to learn about to write this novel. I've grown up in a variety of ski towns. I've been around skiing uh, a lot. One of my children is a ski, pole, ski, ski patrol director in Colorado. So I, I, I knew I wasn't gonna have to take a lot of difficult trips and learn a lot that was outside my own experience, which in the case of many novels, some of the hardest ones, I've had to learn a lot outside my own experience. Not this time. And I understand you have two grandkids who are on the U.S. ski team, or were? Yes, though they're, they're they're on it. Yep, they're on it. Um, and uh, my grandson Burke was in the last Olympics. He he finished fifth in the men's uh, freestyle half pipe. I th was hoping he'd he'd um, uh, get a shot at uh, at at third, but he's got. He's got more Olympics ahead of him. And what is his name? So we know to look for him. Burke Irving, B-I-R-K. And his sister, younger sister, is also on the U.S. women's uh, ski team, Svea, S-V-E-A. So talk about your and your family's connection to skiing, which is, of course, well, where this novel begins, The Last Chair. Uh, uh, unlike uh, the narrator of this novel, Adam, who hates skiing because of how much uh, skiing takes his mother away from him when he's a young child. I had no such animosity towards skiing. Uh, everyone in my family skied. I grew up in New Hampshire. Um, uh, I, was, I, I learned to ski when I was very young at a, at a good time to learn it. But Skiing went out of my life for a long time be, because wrestling was a winter sport. And uh, from the moment I uh, turned to wrestling as, as my sort of one and only sport, uh, uh, of course, I wasn't uh, permitted to go skiing. And when I was coaching wrestling, I wouldn't let any of my wrestlers go skiing either. Um, so uh, for a sizable piece of my life, I was taken away from what I'd learned to do as a child. And only after I'd stopped coaching wrestling when I was 47, only then did I go back to skiing and I found I wasn't as good as I used to be. Um, uh, I'm certainly the weakest skier in my family. I'm a little better than the guy who's telling the story of the last chairlift, but not a whole lot. I still call myself a uh, more of an intermediate than an expert skier, but I've just been around skiing a lot, living in New Hampshire, living in Vermont, um, uh, having a child in, in Colorado, uh, spending a number of years in Europe. I lived in Salemse, a ski town. Uh, I lived in the Alberg. I lived in, in um, uh, I, I've, 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 I've been in a number of uh, ski towns. Did you always know that you wanted to write a novel uh, related to skiing in in the well, way that the last chairlift is. I, I think what this, um, I don't think this novel is about skiing. Skiing is a convenient uh, tool uh, to uh, one of the greatest hotels in in the United States, the Hotel Jerome in Aspen, and you really don't get uh, to know the Jerome if you're not a skier. Um, uh, Aspen's a ski town, and and so. Um, my attraction to uh, the ghost element of this story uh, drew me to the Jerome. Um, and I was more 
attracted to the Jerome than I was to the subject of skiing, except I knew um, the mother uh, should have a recklessness about her that was um, in tandem to me of someone who had been a former racer, right? The thing about Adam's mother is we know she'll go too far. Well, uh, every athlete, especially athletes in, in, uh, in a downhill uh, skiing event, um, um, they have to have a, a fondness for a, rec a recklessness that most people shun. Well, I was more interested in Adam's mother's recklessness or her willingness to take a step too far in other areas of her life than I ever was about her skiing. So I think it's a misconstruing to, to think of the yes. last chairlift, even with that title and that image on the cover. Um, it, it ain't a skiing novel, really. Fair enough. And you have said that the two primary political targets of the last chairlift are the Republicans and the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. Explain what you mean by that. Well, at the time I was writing the novel, I thought, oh, some people will think I'm being uh, harsh on the Republicans and on the Reagan years in particular, and that uh, I'm taking that uh, Roman Catholic uh, hierarchy a little to task. Uh, I don't feel in the mood to apologize after what's happened in uh, the US Supreme Court. Uh, those Republican justices who overturned Roe, uh, all but one of them uh, is Catholic, the one who isn't, was raised a Catholic. His mother was a staunch anti-abortion activist who worked in the Reagan administration. So I'll stand by what I say. Um, uh, the, um, uh, the papal definition of life from the moment of uh, conception is the definition of abortion that those Supreme Court justices were listening to. What they did is more in step with the Vatican than it is with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, that part so often repeated in the last chairlift, uh, as you know, make no law respecting an establishment of religion. That is what those justices did. When you uh, received an Oscar for adapting the screenplay of the Cider House Rules, in your acceptance speech, uh, you thanked Planned Parenthood and NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. Um, talk about your connection to this issue. What has drawn you back to it and to champion the issue of abortion rights? Well, uh, the issue of abortion rights is, 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 is not dissimilar um, from the issue of LGBTQ rights. Look at what's happening in Republican states. Look at what state legislators in those states are doing in the area of banning books. What are they banning books about? They're banning books about abortion and they're banning books uh, on the LGBTQ subject. Who are they keeping these books from? This is legislation that is targeting schools and libraries. So basically what they're saying is to young gay, lesbian, trans kids, um, they want them to feel even more alone and isolated than they already feel. They don't want those kids to have access to, let the, to material that will let them know they're not alone. They already feel alone. Uh, there's, a, there's a cruelty to that that is unspeakable. Um, 
you have the issue of LGBTQ rights and transgender rights in particular is personal for you. Um, talk a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that my first uh, transgender woman uh, heroine, Roberta Muldoon, um, in the world according to Garp, uh, well, I created Roberta um, before my youngest child, uh, born Everett, um, was born. Um, uh, my uh, third son, Everett, transitioned to female um, in 2014-2015. Uh, uh, I'm very proud of her. I know what kind of lonely bravery is, is required uh, to make that uh, transition. Um, uh, trans men and women are a minority within a sexual minority, and they've often been targeted and treated um, uh, as such. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of my uh, trans daughter, and I was conscious, very conscious, in the writing of this novel that I was making a uh, trans woman hero uh, for her, uh, for Eva, who is my hero. Hmm. Did your, you know, you, you become your characters in some ways as you write them, or you, you have to kind of adopt their personality, their thought processes to write as intimately as you do. So do you feel like when you wrote The World According to Garp and you were exploring the whole issue of transgender identity, that that prepared you in any way for your own daughter's transition? Oh, no, I think, of course, you're much more uh, afraid for the lives of the people you personally know and love um, than you are for uh, a group you don't personally know, but whose cause you identify with and wish to support. Um, I was a young, at the time, unknown writer with two young children, uh, two little children, when one time I overheard my mother say, and I don't even remember the context. She didn't say it to me. She might have said it to someone else in the house at the time. Um, but she said something that stayed with me. And it's something that I've had my fictional mothers, more than one of them, Little Ray says it, uh, more than one of them. It's one of them. I, I've had them, uh, my fictional mothers, say this too. Um, this was in the um pro roe versus way uh, uh days uh, sorry in the pre roe days right and um my mom was a uh nurse's aide in a family counting county counseling service uh, meaning that uh, she was dealing with a lot of young underage uh women and and girls who were facing either a mandatory childbirth uh, or an unsafe or illegal abortion. And my mom said, if they, meaning men in power, if they can treat us, meaning women, like we're sexual minorities, think of how much worse they'll treat lesbians and gays. Think of how much worse they'll treat them. Actual, so to speak, sexual uh, minorities. So I, let's just say I came from a family where the talk of discrimination against women, um, of suppressing women's rights, um, and the awareness of the intolerance of the LGBT community, 
it, it, it was an active subject in in my my family. My my mom was aware of it um, uh, and made me aware of it um, long before I wrote the Cider House Rules. So you have the long view of this issue. I wonder what your insight is into why this has become such a potent political fodder right now for the right, the anti-gay, anti-trans um, laws and rhetoric that we hear coming and from the, the right. Push, and the pushback against abortion rights. Yes. Um, they, they've been... They've been pretty proximate, haven't they? Um, yeah, you're right. Um, well, uh, I've never considered myself politically prescient. This is why I write about the past. Um, I think I have a better understanding when I can look back 10 or 15 years of, I think about, my. I wrote a Vietnam novel, you know, more than 10 years after the war, because I wanted to be sure the things that made me angry during the war still made me angry, right? Um, so I'm not good at predicting the future. I remember thinking in those Vietnam years and in the AIDS years that I would never see the, uh, the U.S. Uh, as, as divided as it was then. Wrong on both counts. It's more divided now. Um, but what was called at the time the moral majority or the Christian right, the social conservatives of the Republican Party, those were the people that Ronald Reagan welcomed at the time uh, into what he called the big tent of the Republican Party. Well, the Republican Party hasn't been able to get rid of them. They are the party. Um, and, and good guys like Jim Jeffords uh, left the party and, and became in, in, independent um, because he wouldn't go along uh, with the uh, lack of a social conscience of the Republican Party. Uh, Jim had one. Uh, he, you know, he he was. How many pro-choice re Republicans are there now? He, uh, Jim Jeffords was one. Um, I used to talk, I used to run into him, talk to him most of the time at Planned Parenthood events. Hmm. Um, well, they're gone. They've been pushed out. Right. Um, we are in the middle of a wave of book banning, and your books have been banned. Um, tell us a little bit about your own experience with being banned? Well, <laughs> once again, I, when it happened, when it first happened, I didn't take it, I, I didn't take it as seriously as I should have. When, when um, uh, Matt Krause, uh, a Republican House of Representative guy uh, in, in Texas proposed this legislation banning all kinds of books there and included the Cider House rules on, on his list. Um, the first, my first reaction was, what they're only banning the cider house rules. That tells you what the, the, tells you is that these people haven't read anything. If they'd read more of my books, they surely would have banned more of them. Um, so, you know, so I, you're I, insulted that they didn't. Well, I felt a little disappointed that they'd only banned that one. Well, uh -huh. just, you know, uh, just wait. It's it, it it's it's not a joke. Um, uh, I, I didn't realize, um, you know, what an epidemic of of um, uh, book banning would sort of follow Texas and Florida's um, first um, uh, efforts in, in, in that area. Governor Abbott in Texas and um, his uh, counterpart, I shall not name, in Florida. 
have you ever engaged the book banners to ask them why or have you heard no i have i hope uh um, more interesting and and nicer people to engage i don't <laughs> I, I don't i don't care about that uh, it's appalling though and and uh, and the, and and the country should be especially concerned about what what this means for 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 young kids um uh, what this means for young readers because you're you're denying them the experience of finding themselves in books they read um and and the, the and the more of a minority children feel they're in or young adults um adolescents feel that they the more of a minority young adolescents feel they are the more support they need uh from the books they discover that 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 um, make them feel uh, part of a, a family of people who are are being persecuted. It's important. You have a green maple leaf tattoo, and I know your Canadian neighbors all think this is about them. But you've had to explain to people it's actually <laughs> not about Canada. So it's about Vermont. Well, um, you know, to be to be fair, um, to be fair, as a speaking as a dual citizen, speaking as um, uh, a citizen and a passport holder of the U.S. and of Canada, well, uh, to be fair, um, the many years I lived in uh, Vermont, there were Vermonters who were uh, surprised to hear that um, uh, the maple leaf, the maple tree, and maple syrup was actually a part of life elsewhere <laughs> that is other than Vermont. Well, the Canadians are shocked to, to know that I know so much about maple trees. And it's as if the, the, I, I keep saying to uh, Canadians, you know, the, the maple trees keep growing south of the border. Um, they <laughs> really do, you know. Um, other people have maple syrup. <laughs> so talk about your Vermont connection. Well, um, as as anyone uh, who's grown up or lived a long time in northern uh, New England, which I did, I grew up in New Hampshire and 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 uh, uh, spent as as many years or more in in Vermont. Well, it's we we all know how um, uh, protective those northern New England states, Vermont, uh, Maine, and uh, uh, New Hampshire are um, of themselves and the distinctions they make um, uh, among their neighbors. I'll never forget a, an obituary I read when I was living in Vermont um, uh, about a guy who'd moved um, um, uh, to, to Burlington uh, when he was with his family when he was three. He'd moved from New Hampshire um, to Burlington when he was three and he'd been quite a distinguished uh, citizen of the uh, town of Burlington. Um, and when he died, the local paper, the headline, uh, said, New Hampshire man dies. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I could have stayed in Vermont for the rest of my life, and I would still have been a New Hampshire man, um, right? Um, so I don't know, I, I know uh, how, how that works, but Vermont, uh, was a wonderful experience for me and and um uh i loved uh, living there it's just that um uh 
my wife is Canadian. And when, when we met, she was my publisher in Canada of the Cider House Rules. Um, uh, when we met, I was um, looking after uh, uh, two boys from my uh, previous marriage. And, and I, I didn't want to leave the United States. I wanted them to have a, um, a home to come to in, in, in Vermont. I, I wanted to be around them at, at least uh, and, when, and see them through school and into their university years. And, and so Janet did me the favor of coming to the U.S., of becoming a U.S. citizen, uh, of, uh, of, of working in the U.S. Um, and when the kids all grew up, Janet's and my um, uh, daughter Eva um, among them, when everybody was out of school, Janet and I, we'd always been spending as many as um, three or four months of the year in Canada. Uh, when, when I was a, a, a citizen of the U.S. and living in Vermont. Um, so I was very familiar with Toronto, but when everybody got older and kind of left us, um, Janet and I looked at each other and, and just sort of said, well, maybe perhaps <clears throat> at our age, maybe the city would be a little more fun, you know, because, you know, <laughs> The kids don't bring all their, their uh, friends home anymore. And um, uh, two of my kids had a couple of kids of their own. So it seemed like um, it was time to return the favor. And so I said, well, you went, you know, Janet had come to the U.S. and had enjoyed going through the immigration process in the U.S. And uh, it was a lot of fun for me to go through the, at my age, to, especially to go through the immigration uh, process in, in 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 Canada it was very moving experience, um, uh, especially at a time where, uh, you know, a big city like Toronto, the biggest city uh, in Toronto, the third biggest city in in North America. Well, um, you can imagine that there were a lot of people I was going through the immigration process with, um, who had. Um, uh, come the refugee route and and who had had simply harrowing experiences um, before they could safely get to Canada. Um, and all I had to do was marry a Canadian. And it was pretty, and it was pretty easy to go through the process. But I had, I really learned a lot in the process about other people's circumstances because in all those waiting rooms, that you go to in the immigration process. Um, there were a lot of them where I was one of the few people who spoke English. Hmm. And so the immigration officers would ask me to help people fill out their forms. Um, and so I, 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 I was really touched to hear a lot about um, other people's uh, lives. Having asking John Irving to help an immigrant with their writing uh, and their applications, um, that seems a, a well. It, it's a very touching use of your uh, considerable talents. Well, uh, I enjoyed it. I really learned a lot too, and and in most cases with the whole families um, immigrating together, it, it was not a surprise to me, but. Uh, in most cases, I'm talking to the the child in the family, because of course the child has been more exposed to uh, English than the parents have. The parents are the 
are the frightened ones. The, the parents don't know a word of English, but if there are children, well, the children had a pretty good chance of having picked up some English in school. Um, so I, I'm talking to eight and 10 and 12 year olds um, uh, who are speaking for their parents and the rest of their family because their English is the best, uh, you know, is the, is the best English there is in, in their home. I, I'd love to talk a little bit about your process. You have said that you write seven days a week. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, the writing of my first four novels, uh, I was not as uh, self-supporting as a writer and never imagined I would be. Um, I was uh, teaching English and coaching wrestling and imagined I always would be. I, I, I was, I thought during the writing of the fourth novel, The World According to Garp, that um, I, I had a, a pretty good life. I wish I had more time to write. Um, I was writing maybe two hours a day and not every day. Uh, and I wish I had more time. Um, but I liked teaching. I, I, I liked being around uh, young people who were interested in writing themselves. Um, uh, I knew enough about wrestling to feel I was making a contribution in the wrestling room to uh, young wrestlers. So uh, it, it was okay, you know. But when I became with that fourth novel, my first bestseller, when I became self-supporting, certainly my books benefited and I benefited um, by having the whole day to write and every day. It was just a dream. And maybe if it had happened to me with the first novel, um, I might have taken it for granted and it wouldn't have seemed so special. But because I never expected it to happen, uh, I, I feel to this day it's, it's a luxury. It, it doesn't feel like a discipline that I'm writing seven days a week. I'm getting to do the thing I love best and I get to do it all the time. Uh, so no complaints. Uh, that said, my process has always been what I call ending driven. Um, from those novels of Dickens, uh, the writer I read who first made me want to be a writer, if I could be a writer like him. And the first time I read uh, Melville's Moby Dick, I was a couple of years older than when I read Great Expectations, I was 17. And it was that novel that showed me how conscious Melville was of the ending, the exactness of that ending when he was writing the second and third chapter, uh, how, how that ending is perfectly uh, foreshadowed. And I thought, oh, uh, it, 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 it's a good idea to know that much about uh, a story before you begin. So I, I think it's length, not, it's length notwithstanding. What pleases me most about The Last Chairlift is that I think I knew more about this novel's ending before I began than I've known about any of my previous uh, novels. I think this, this novel reflects um, more than any of my previous novels um, how much I knew concretely and exactly concerning where this novel is going. Um, and, and so I'm, I, I, I think that uh, for, people, for readers who go the distance, they will be uh, rewarded by what I feel is 
uh, an emotional impact of what happens at the end of this novel that is about as well set up as I've ever set up an ending. I always say, I know the last sentence. Well, in this case, I had three or four last sentences and either one of them would have worked. Um, I like to know the title too. In this case, I had more titles than I could use. Um, this book went through a number of titles and it could have been any one of them. Um, the last chairlift being the last one I chose, but the one my wife and daughter liked the best. And it was a progression I was familiar with in my process, as you call it, um, before. Same thing happened with the Cider House Rules. I, it used to be called The Boy Who Belonged to St. Clouds, a metaphorical title. Um, that ended up being the title of the first chapter. The Cider House Rules are actual. Um, they're real rules, stupid rules, ignored rules, but they exist. They're an actual, they're actual thing. Um, and like the last chairlift, they come rather late in the story, not as late as the last chairlift, but pretty late. Well, I traded in the case of uh, this novel, The Last Chairlift, I traded several metaphorical titles, Darkness as a Bride, The Honeymoon on the Cliff, Rules for Ghosts. I gave those titles up or used them elsewhere and chose that actual chairlift at the top of Bromley Mountain because something actually important will happen there. So that, that, that part of the process was very deliberate. It's a little hard to talk about this, as you know, in the case of this novel, because for readers who haven't read the book, I don't want to give the ending away. Yes, of course. <laughs> um, and I won't make you, other than to say that that image, I know you wanted an image of the last chairlift on Bromley Mountain looking towards the sunset is very striking. Is that an image that is from your own experience? Oh, sure. Yeah. And and um, I'm grateful to my good friend, uh, uh, Grant Turner, who's um, uh, from long ago and far away, uh, ski patroller at uh, Bromley. Um, uh, I, I, I've been at the top of Bromley with Grant, and he's kind of talked me through the lift up um, process. And uh, it was Grant who got the photographs of that chairlift at sunrise, that foremost downhill facing chair at the top of the Blue Ribbon Quad. And he, he, he hiked up there and he skinned up there and, and skied down uh, and took the photographs. And we used those photographs, those, those dawn sunrise photographs as a model for the artist's uh, painting on the on the cover, so um, the painting with the painting, we could make it look a little more ominous. Um, it may not be giving too much away to say that in the novel that chairlift is described as a hearse, a waiting hearse. <laughs> I don't want to make you tiptoe any closer to the edge than that. <laughs> so, good um, call. Good call. <laughs> You've described yourself as a New England writer, and um, and and New England features really prominently that sense of place, the cider house rules in Maine, um, and uh, you know Vermont. Uh, the is also in there. What does that mean to you to be a New England writer? Well, I I think 
every time I'm 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 sort of pushed to describe myself as a writer, I fall back on 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 the 19th century model, which to me is the model of the form for the novel. The 19th century novel was was uh, the novel that sold me on being uh, or becoming uh, a novelist. Uh, not the modern people, not the contemporaries. Um, it, it, Dickens, uh, Hardy, George Eliot, but also uh, among my um, uh, American counterparts, New Englanders, I call them, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Herman Melville. Uh, I never bought into um, the kind of hierarchy of the great American novel all the years I was growing up when I was a teenager, um, the canon that we were exposed to, the kind of was the Hemingway, Faulkner, Fitzgerald model. Well, it just didn't interest me. And I always thought it was weirdly nationalistic um, to uh, lionize the great American novel. Um, uh, I never thought that writing novels was a sport. It's it's not an Olympic activity. I don't think it's necessarily a national act, activity. So part of my pushing back against that was to say, uh, I don't have any American models. I have a, there's a couple of New Englanders who do it for me. And I think of Horthon and Melville as New Englanders. Um, they go back almost far enough to, um, a, a, a time when the New England states, as we both know, are the only ones that matter. <laughs> yes, I hear there's a few others, but I haven't been to any of them yet. I can't keep track of those, you know. Um, you were inducted into the Wrestling Hall of Fame, and as you mentioned, you coached wrestling uh, till your late 40s. And some writers may feel like wrestling is the perfect metaphor for what they go through as they try to commit words to a page. So. Talk a little bit about your wrestling history and how it influences your writing. Well, uh, you have to have a work ethic um, uh, to do something that's gonna, the, the training for which is, is arduous and it, it, it's going to uh, extend beyond the practice hours. Um, uh, wrestling is is like boxing, like judo, um, like taekwondo. It's a weight class sport, so you're kind of conscious of of it in the wrestling season. Um, uh, every minute of the day, you're conscious of it with every bite of food you eat. Um, uh, the the weight consciousness in a weight class sport uh, is is and can be it can be a very injurious factor. If it's if it's not done properly or sensibly, but it's constant. And if you're writing a novel, you're in your mind. You're writing it even when you're not writing. Uh, when you wake up at night and you can't go back to sleep, you're back to the sentence that the, that you ended the day with, and you're working on the next one. Um, well, it was also it was just a coincidence in my life that. I determined at the age of 15 uh, that I wanted to be a fiction writer, that I wanted to be a novelist. And, and I wanted to be a novelist like Dickens. 
Well, parallel to that, I started wrestling. I started wrestling when I was 14. So, and they were the first two things in my life at that time, 14, 15, a young teenager. They were the first two things that I'd ever been any good at. I'd always felt behind in school. Um, uh, I was small. Uh, I hadn't particularly liked or been very good at other sports. And here was something that it, it clicked for me. The wrestling really clicked for me. And, and suddenly, uh, with reading Charles Dickens, I had an incentive at the age of 15 of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And well, fortunately, I was a better writer than I ever was a wrestler. Um, I've always said that my induction into the Wrestling Hall of Fame is, yes, I, I am in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, but uh, there's a back door and I came in the back door. And what I mean by the back door is um, uh, you can get in the National Wrestling Hall of Fame by being a distinguished wrestler or a distinguished coach. I'm neither, right? Or you can be a distinguished American at some other thing, writing, acting, right? Um, nuclear science. Um, and you get in the Wrestling Hall of Fame by being someone who wrestled. Um, they did wrestle, um, but they were really well known for something else. So I got in the Wrestling Hall of Fame the way Kirk Douglas got in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, the way <clears throat> uh, the way Donald Rumsfeld got in the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Okay, it's it's not the same as wrestling my way into the Wrestling Hall of Fame. Yeah, I did do it a long time, but I never won a major tournament uh, in high school, uh, in college, or post college competition. I did do it for a long time. I mean, I competed from the age of fourteen. Until uh, I was uh, 34, um, that's a long time, and I coached till I was 47. Um, I was on a lot of good teams, but I wasn't one of the good guys on those teams. All right. Well, let me ask you about um, Kurt Vonnegut. He was one of your teachers at the Iowa Writers Workshop. What did you learn from him? I know he gave you his cap at one point. He passed you his hat, so he obviously thought highly of you. He thought you were somebody who might go somewhere with that hat. Good, good for you to, to remember that. Uh, it was a terrible cap. Um, <laughs> and it hadn't been Kurtz to begin with. It had been Billy Wilder's. And Billy Wilder gave it to Saul Steinberg and, and said to Steinberg, pass it on to another artist you like. And uh, Steinberg gave it to Kurt. And uh, when Kurt gave it to me, my first thought was, that, oh, dear, something's the matter with Kurt. He must be dying or something. And Kurt said, no, I'm fine. I'm just passing it on because that's what you're supposed to do. I said, oh, OK. Well, let me tell you this. I don't know what Billy Wilder did while he was wearing that hat. Um, uh, and it always looked too small for me to have fit on Vonnegut's head. Um, but I put it on a wall and I put it in a frame on a on the wall, but I certainly didn't put it on my head. Um, and I passed it on to one of my writing students from uh, uh, from Iowa. 
uh, Vonnegut was a wonderful man and a, a, a wonderful teacher and mentor uh, to me. And uh, both when he was reading your fiction or, or pointing to your fiction or talking to you, um, the thing he said most uh, often was, God damn it, you've got to be kind. Well, that stuck. Because the world had not been kind to Kurt. Um, but but uh, he understood that uh, kindness uh, to uh, your fellow man was a was, um, better idea. He said that to a pair of babies born into the world, uh, he was speaking to babies, God damn it, you've got to be kind. And right. I remember that quote because it was very meaningful to my father, and we read it as his funeral. Really? Well, it's, it's, it's a good one. So and it he, gives me chills that you're actually pulling that quote. He, he said it all the time. What did he, he mean by it? Um, well, I, I think it's, I, I think it's pretty literal. I mean, he'd seen his share of a lack of kindness, as everybody knows. He'd, he'd been a, a POW in Dresden. He saw what Dresden looked like after the firebombing. Um, he knew how unkind uh, human beings could be to other uh, human beings. And, um, but this was his mantra. This um, uh, this was his uh, uh, thing. I also uh, I think what I got from him also was he told me once uh, on the evidence of of my first novel. He said, "You know, you're you're you have a you're kind of a doomsayer." Well, speaking of so was he, right? Um, he said, you're, um, you're kind of a worst case uh, scenario guy. Um, but um, it helps if you can be funny uh, before you get to the part that isn't funny at all. Um, more people will take the ride if they think it's going to be fun, if they think it's all going to be fun. And so I, um, I could certainly see that uh, in his writing. It was always funny until it wasn't. Hmm. And and I thought, well, okay, I can do that. Um, uh, I I can keep you reading. I can, I hope, uh, draw you into the story um, uh, and uh, keep you entertained uh, until I can uh, build up enough time that you've spent with my characters so that you care about what's going to happen to them and you're afraid about what might happen to them. Um, but until you get to the afraid part, um, I can make you think, oh, this is fun. This is funny. Um, uh, this is hilarious. And then um, act one of The Last Chairlift is a lot funnier than act two and act three. Um, uh, and no surprise, uh, the chapters in The Last Chairlift start out pretty short. And the more invested I feel a reader can, uh, I can count on a reader to be emotionally uh, invested in what's ha going to happen to these characters. Mm. Uh, once, once a reader knows these characters well enough to think, uh, oh, this isn't good, 
Um, she's had into trouble. Well, once a reader loves those characters enough to be worried about them, now the chapters can get longer, right? Um, and then the funny stuff goes away. I know that Salman Rushdie is a longtime friend of yours. Um, I wonder if you could talk about how you met, but also how is he doing and, and how the attack on him uh, has affected you? Well, it's, it's affected me a lot. Um, uh, I think he's doing pretty well. Um, uh, we've uh, we've had some emails back and forth, and he he he's, he sounds like himself, um, but uh, uh, he's certainly um, uh, been been uh, uh, through a lot. Um, I've been on that stage at Chautauqua. Um, it's almost possible to imagine how you could. Uh, protect anyone there. It's a, it's an outdoor amphitheater. You're at the bottom of a teacup. Um, uh, the stage is not difficult to access. Um, uh, I remember the first time I uh, was on that stage, I was reminded of being on a wrestling mat, how exposed you feel to the crowd. That There's nothing to stop a crowd, someone in the crowd from coming out of the crowd and walking out on the mat. Well, you had that feeling at that Chautauqua um, amphitheater. Um, there's been some criticism of Chautauqua about, well, they could have given him better security. I don't know if they could have given anybody better security there. It's a place that's very difficult to secure. Um, uh, well, I was given a reading in London um, at the invitation, I'm sure, of my uh, English publisher. Uh, Garp had been published. I think I was still writing the Hotel New Hampshire. Um, and so I was probably, it was after Garp had been published, but I was I was uh, probably reading from an unpublished uh, manuscript of the Hotel New Hampshire. And this, this guy came to my uh, uh, reading. Um, he was carrying a big box. Um, nowadays, they wouldn't have let somebody carrying a big box into a reading. Um, but uh, it wasn't the strangest thing in the world. And at the end of the reading, he came up and he gave me the box and 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 told me how much he'd like the world according to Garth. And off he went. And I thought, oh, well, it's another manuscript. It's a writer giving me a manuscript. And I went back to my hotel. I had jet lag. I woke up at five in the morning. Um, couldn't get back to sleep. Opened the box. Started reading. Um, I was born in the city of Bombay. Well, three hours later, I called my, I was still reading, and I called my um, English publisher in, in, in London, and I said, Jesus, this guy came and was reading last night, and he gave me this book. I, and it's, I'm, I'm reading it. It's, it's, it's amazing. And she said, I probably called her too early. Uh, she said, I know, I'm publishing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the manuscript of Midnight's Children. And, um, you know, Salman and I have been uh, very close uh, since then. Um, he came to stay with me in Vermont in the early days of the fatwa, came with his son Zuffer. Zuffer was learning how to drive a car. As you might imagine, even in Vermont, I was a whole lot more afraid of Salman driving around than I was about Zuffer driving around. 
And I'll, I'll never forget, he was in Vermont for a while. And then when he and Zephyr left, um, I ran into somebody I uh, I knew in Vermont, someone who had seen me with Salman and, and um, and the guy was the guy was very sincere, and he came up and he said, um, "I saw you, you know, the other day when I said I, I saw you out to dinner with that um, uh, fella, you know." The, he said, "You know, uh, that guy. He he looks like that guy Salman Rushdie, that guy you were with." And and I said, "I said he knows." <laughs> Well, uh, let me just uh, close here um, by asking, it's been 45 years since uh, the world according to GARP uh, sort of made you, uh, put, pushed you onto the big stage. What advice do you have at age 80 that uh, you think the 30-something-year-old John Irving, who was working on uh, the world according to GARP, could have really used to hear? You just can't get down. You have to. You 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 have to believe in what you're doing because it's it's going to take years to do it. Um, I I've never written a novel, even the shorter ones, in fewer than three or four years, and some of them have taken eight or nine. Um, uh, you can't. Uh, you can't let a, a bad review or or, or bad sales um, uh, affect you. You've got to, you know, it, it's it's it, it's it's like any other endeavor. You can't you you can't let outside factors get under your skin. You you have to um, uh, you have to stick to your purpose and. Uh, um, and be a kind of horse with uh, blinders on, and and to go back to one of your earlier questions, I think the wrestling helped me, because boy, do you have to have your horse with blinders on there? It's 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 very uh, intense, eight or nine minutes you're focusing on, but um, you got to be focused. Um, and uh, and you also can't uh, get uh, down on yourself after you've just been uh, somebody's just kicked your tail. Um, you, you've got to do it again and get better. Um, so it's it's pretty common advice. It's it, it's it's what um, uh, it, it's what I was so lucky to have good teachers and, and good uh, teachers, people who uh, were supporting me um, uh, early on. And, uh, and you know, I, I learned to listen to the positive and, um, and stonewall the rest. Um, and then when, when you do have a breakthrough book, um, you know, um, I uh, uh, I wrote um, uh, three novels that were that were not bestsellers that very few people read, 
Well, they only had good reviews. And then the second you have a breakthrough book, um, uh, well then, uh, the good news is you can support yourself. Um, the bad news is the more attention you get and the more successful you are, um, the more bad reviews you're going to attract. Um, so you can't whine about it. You can't. You can't. You can't whine or mope or or um, complain. Um, if if you're, uh, I had an editor once um, who was was uh, very crusty, and whenever I would breathe a word of complaint about this review or that review, um, he would say to me, and I learned it after a time, but it took me a while to learn it. He would say, did they get your name right? Did they get the title right? Yes, I said, then don't bitch about it, he said. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that that's a good note to end on. <laughs> I, I think if you were plot planning this interview, that would be the closing sentence you'd want to drive towards. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, John Irving, thanks so much for returning to Vermont and joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. <laughs>